Okay, welcome to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. I am, as always, excited, pleased, happy uh, to have a very special guest um, with me today. And this is someone I knew in a different role, and now she's in a new role that I'm so, so, so excited about. And I am going to have Miss Tiffany Russell introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name is Tiffany Russell, and I am the Chief Officer of Crisis and Justice Partnerships with the SAMHSA 988 and Crisis Behavioral Health Coordinating Office. Uh, SAMHSA stands for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. You're at my old stomping ground is where you are. You're not in my old office, same floor, I think, but different, different office. So, <laughs> so happy that you're there. And, um, you know, we've been having these conversations about 988 in crisis, um, because that's where the community and sort of, you know, our nation is really focused. And we have had an episode uh, with uh, Dr. John Draper, who was a former director at Vibrant running the 988 suicide and crisis line. And so that episode is number 67, and it's called the new number for hope. So if people want to hear more about sort of the nitty gritty day to day, you can listen to that episode. But SAMHSA is the federal agency, Vibrant is a contracted agency, right? right? So can you talk a little bit about that relationship and then just do sort of a brief overview of what 988 is and what happens when folks um, use that number? Yeah, so 988 um, is a new number that was launched on July 16th of this year. And essentially what it did was give a three-digit, easy-to-remember number for the National Suicide Prevention and Crisis Hotline that's been in place for a very, very long time that had a 1-800 number that most people couldn't remember. And so we wanted to, just in the same way that most people knew about 911, that's the place you call for emergencies, wanted to have an easy-to-remember three-digit number that people can not only call, they can text, and they also have the ability to chat and have someone that they can talk to whenever they're in a behavioral health, mental health, substance use crisis. And so when someone calls 988, um, they're in a crisis as defined by them. That's, I think, Correct. one way to really start the conversation, which could be a number of things they're calling for. What happens when they call? Like, can you just walk us through a little bit? I know John did, but or Dr. Draper did, but I, you know, in case people don't have time to listen back to that episode. Sure. So very simply, I mean, when someone calls it again, you have the ability to call, you can text the number from your cell phone, and you can also go to a chat line online to contact a licensed clinician or a trained counselor that has the ability to talk you through the crisis that you're in at that point. So you call into the call center, and it basically is routed based on the area code of your cell phone number or your your landline, whichever one you're calling from. And just to kind of clear up something while I'm, I'm mentioning that, it's not geo-routed, meaning it's not going to pick up from wherever you are. So for instance, I have a Georgia cell phone number, but I currently reside in Maryland. If I were to call 988 right now, it's going to connect me to a crisis center in Atlanta or somewhere in Georgia uh, related to my area code. So there is not the ability at this point or at this very moment in time where they are 
be able to connect you based on your actual location of where you are when you're you're making that phone call. But you are connected to a call center. Um, if the call center that you're connected to has a long wait time or there are several calls in the queue, you are transferred to another backup center because we want to get to that person quickly and we don't want them to be on hold for a very long time. That's something that you want to kind of avoid um, when someone is in crisis. But essentially their, their call is taken and even if they need other translation services, we are able to speak with them in English and Spanish, but there are also up to 250 other languages that can be used if, if someone is calling into the crisis center. And essentially they're, they're able to connect with someone that has the ability to talk them through and connect them to resources in their area if needed. And on the very rare occasions where we feel like that person is at risk. We do have the ability to connect them to more immediate services or we may reach out to 911. Typically, we always ask them for their consent before we do that. But we do want to be able to get them to someone very quickly should that be needed or that's something that our trained counselors determine is, is a service that's needed. But typically, 98% of all of the calls that we receive in the call center are actually handled during that one first call or that first impression, um, that first text message or chat conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's really not a need to transfer them out to any more immediate services or more emergency type services at that time. I think that's really helpful. I think there is concern about geolocation. Um, you know, we're we're living in an era where <laughs> there is so much like, wow, people can find me for anything. You know, people have right. access to my bank account. People have access to all of this stuff that I, I think, you know, when we're feeling most vulnerable, you know, you want more autonomy when you're feeling very vulnerable and Absolutely. less kind of like this you know, digital oversight kind of situation. So I think it's really important to talk about, can you um, talk to us a little bit about sort of uh, maybe like call volume? Again, that's another thing that was like, I'm ears to the ground. Here's what people are saying, you know, oh, it's going to be too many calls. There's going to be this increase. There's not going to be enough capacity. So tell us kind of where we are right now with um, some of the data and call volume. Yeah, I'm happy to. I I mean, when we compare the volume of the, the crisis line from this time last year to, to where we are right now, it, has been a significant increase in in call volume. And I would say on average, we are looking at almost a 50% increase in calls that are coming into the call centers. And we have been able to meet the capacity or the need for those that call volume. But I think what we have learned in the short amount of time that we are have launched this three-digit number that's a little bit easier for everyone to remember, one of the things that we have noticed is that we've seen an 80% increase in the texting to the crisis line. And we've also found that a lot of the individuals that are doing the texting and chatting particularly are under the age of 25. And so there has been just a surge in this under 25 population making contact and reaching out. If if you look at the ability for for texting in in August of 2021, we were at about 3,400. In August of 2022, we are at 39,000 texts that have been answered. 
that's over an a thousand percent increase. Mm -hmm. And so having the, the infusion of funds to enhance the ability of the texting and the chatting feature, we've seen and, and, you know, an immeasurable like increase in mm -hmm. the ability to do that and, and their access to that and they're using it because they know it's available. I think the other part of that that's what something that we're really impressed with is just how quickly we're answering the calls. Um, and this, again, goes back to that capacity where, you know, when we first kind of started measuring this. Um, it took us up to two minutes before a call could be answered. And again, we realize that when someone is in crisis, like that's, that's a long time, uh, two minutes. Uh, it can be a long time to, to listen to, to jazz music uh, or elevator music mm -hmm. while you're waiting to be connected to someone to help you. And so we've been able to bring that down to 42 seconds. The average speed to answer, you know, being 42 seconds is great. It's, it's still not the same as the numbers you might see in a 911 call center. But again, if you're thinking about where we were before and where we are right now and the short amount of time that we've been able to see that increase. I, th I think that's just a testament to the team at Vibrant that's working to enhance these services, but also to all of the external partners that are helping us get the messaging out to let people know that the number exists, getting more volunteers to get more counselors in the, in the centers to answer these calls. But I also, I think one of the great things about this too, is that we launched on July 16th. The data from that point moving forward is already available um, to the general public. It's online. That information will be updated regularly. Um, you will at least have the monthly numbers. We are already working to create more I think interactive dashboards is probably the right way to say it, where it breaks down your the information for your state. You, you will eventually get to a point where you can look at the individual call centers to see how they're doing. But what we want to show there is that we're being transparent because we want to invoke that trust in the system. And if we see that things are not going the way that we want, um, we, we want to be accountable for that and, and to be held accountable for that. You can go to Vibrant's website, you can go to SAMHSA's website, and the monthly numbers will be there. And they are there right now. And we intend to keep it that way. Because again, we want to be transparent and we want to be held accountable for uh, to the taxpayers for the the investment that they're making and having this system be available to everyone in the country. So something else that's coming up too, kind of from from the ground up, um, is you know what we're hearing, particularly from Black communities, but communities of color, minoritized communities. So um, uh, you know, Black Indigenous people of color and or LGBTQ plus communities about sort of concerns and fears around what's happening with all of this 988, especially 988 and 911. Right. So their eyes on, <laughs> there's concerns. So, yeah, so how do you talk about sort of what's happening with that understanding of that experience of disparities for uh, communities of color? Yeah, we definitely acknowledge that there, there is this, this mistrust of emergency services like 988 and 911 and that they they are very valid in in their concerns because of the encounters and tragedies that we some of us know a lot about and and then some of these that are happening you know behind the scenes and and they don't always get called out to the forefront 
Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not happening. And I know that for a lot of the, the communities of color, they, they really do have to think really hard about is what's happening right now at the level of where I need to call 911 to have someone come out and assist me because I am afraid that instead of them receiving services, they are going to receive a law enforcement response that could either lead them or land them in jail or in the hospital or in involuntary hospitalization. And we all know that all of those those things is they don't contribute to the 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 care of of what that person needs at that time and it definitely doesn't lead to any long lasting support um mm-hmm. and i think what we have really tried to think about when doing this is first of all we want to make sure that people know that when they call 988 it's confidential it's private we're not going to ask more than what you're willing to give. So we're not looking for your location. We're not asking you for your name. We're not asking, you know, race, ethnicity or any of that. We're simply trying to give you the ability to speak to someone that might be able to de-escalate the crisis that you're in. And I I remember very, uh, maybe a year ago before I was working for SAMHSA and really understood a lot about Uh, behavioral health crisis response, um, I I was talking to a psychiatrist and uh, she happened to be a Black psychiatrist. And she asked me if I knew how many people of color were a part of like the National Psychiatry Association or like how many were in the country. And I thought, well, of course, it has to be a number like 40%. 40%. And she, she kind of laughed and yeah. was like, I'll bet she did. <laughs> no, no, actually, no, <laughs> actually, no. Yeah. Um, and so when you think about, I am a person that I, I have determined that I need to talk to a therapist or a, a psychiatrist, and I need someone who understands me. And, and a lot of that comes with someone that looks like me, someone that understands me culturally. They understand where I live and, and that things are very different. Again, I'm from the South, and so I'm may want someone who understands what the difference from being in the South and and now I'm living up North. Like there is a difference being on the East Coast. Like you need someone that truly understands all of those different aspects that make us individuals. And it's really hard to be able to do that when you walk into an office and there is no one there that looks like you and they don't understand you. And so now I am hesitant about reaching out and trying to access those services because what really, what what good are they going to do? Like, it's not really going to serve me in the best way possible. And so we're also thinking about things like that as well. It's it's more than just this, uh, the 988 crisis hotline, but we're also thinking about crisis services and the continuum Mm -hmm. of like, how do we infuse more equity parity across the services that are being offered and how do we think about diversity? and, And when we're looking at how do we incentivize more individuals of color to be a part of this system. And it's more than just gaining the trust, but really it's about being able to just provide the services that communities of color need and mm-hmm. and, and just having them trust that they can come into to service and, and actually get the, the types of services that they need and that will speak to them as, as an individual. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's important. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree. If people could see me like nodding my head almost to the point where it's popping off of my neck, um, I couldn't agree more around the, you know, how do people get to that crisis point to begin with, especially people who, where there may be um, inequities um, to access to, you know, providers who look like them, even peers who may look like them. I mean, there are parts of, um, you know, the country where, you know, as a person who does a lot of research around peer support and peer support networks that were confident in some areas that peers look like the communities um, that they're serving. But there are also other communities where that's a bit risky. And so they don't actually look like communities that they're serving. And I know, um, you know, uh, communities are also concerned too about, you know, how do they have um, stakeholder input, whether it be people with lived experience of, sort of some of these response systems, people of color, like, are there ways in which there's stakeholder involvement? Um, how, how do you how do you get feedback from folks from the community? I think what's really important um, when we're thinking about these different types of implementations of new programs, especially from the, the perspective of SAMHSA, when we're talking about funding opportunities and grants, we often encourage and sometimes make it a, a like a requirement that when you're applying for any of our funding, that you have to have a comprehensive group of people that are going to think about the way the system needs to work and will work and make the recommendation for that. And a lot of times that includes making sure you have both sides of the, whether it's behavioral health and criminal justice or public safety, but also making sure that you have representatives of the community, that you have individuals with lived experience as part of that team so that they do have a voice um, and that, or that you infuse a way for there to be some type of public commentary on anything that you're going to implement as part of the process and requirements for receiving dollars. And, and uh, uh, you know, for instance, if a lot of our funding is, is given out at the state level, and so as part of your state team, you need to have someone um, that kind of is representing the the lived experience or making sure that you have some kind of mechanism for community, that you've given a voice to the community. And, and we're really cognizant of that when we're talking about implementation, because too often we make these grand plans and we're moving forward with implementation. And then we find out later, uh, you know, a lot of it doesn't make any sense whatsoever because we didn't ask all of the right people to be a part of that decision-making process. And if they're not a part of that, you was essentially just funded something that can't really move forward. A great example of that was was when I was working in Georgia, we were thinking a lot about reentry and individuals coming out of jail that had mental health, substance use issues. And we put all of this funding into specialized housing, very specific for these individuals coming out of jail. And we would get to the point where they were standing in front of the judge waiting to get their date of when they can be released from jail. And the, and the judge would say, well, they need to have housing before I'll sign off on this. And then, then we would go to the housing that the state has put all of this money into. And they would say, oh, sure, they can come. We would love to have them. They must have two forms of state-issued ID. Oh. And 
you're like looking at the person who's been sitting in jail for a year and it's like I need you to have not only your driver's license but do you have a social security card or do you have and it's like who thought of that rule Mm -hmm. I mean it goes to the you had the greatest plan of putting this thing together but we didn't ask the right people about the process and what what was available and what needed to be required and so we had all of these beds available for individuals coming out of for reentry and they they stayed empty forever because no one qualified and mm-hmm. so we had to go back and change the policy rule that mm-hmm. required them to have these two forms of ID. And so moving forward, it was like, we always have to think about when we're doing any of this, this new development or innovation around changing policy and programming and implementation, you always need to make sure you have not only all of the different voices at the table, but you actually need to talk to people who are in being impacted by these services um, to make sure that, that you have a true understanding of the way the system works and the way that it does not work and why it needs to be changed. And I think the people here at SAMHSA and the people on this team, I think they understand that. Mm-hmm. And they have they have really made an effort to, to make that part of if you want to receive funding or if you want to move forward with an effort here at SAMHSA, you, you really do have to be intentional about having mm-hmm. those voices represented at the table. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great part of the the, the grant and contracting process is having it right there in the in the grants. Um, yeah. And that's something that, you know, folks on the ground can pay attention to if you go to the SAMHSA website and look for when they're doing a funding announcement and read, you know, kind of what's happening and who's been qualified to receive the funding. So you can kind of follow the money, if you will, and, right. and make sure that uh, there's a process for you uh, to be involved either directly or indirectly by somebody else who might be a stakeholder. Absolutely. So I think that's a great thing. And then um, I, I think something else that you said, I think is going to be really two things I want to touch on. And one is um, that as the line continues, 988 continues, you said that there are trained counselors and also licensed folks who are the the, the call or chat agents. That's what I'll call them, the people who um, respond to the calls. And that there's still opportunities available for people to become volunteers or find out about job opportunities. And that's another way I think that, again, if communities of color or minoritized communities or people with lived experience um, have real interest in being one of those agents, they should probably click <laughs> click on, you know, uh, click on uh, that that link and we'll, we'll put it, I'll, I'll put it in the podcast uh, description so people know where to go and look and see if it's possible for them to be uh, trained to be a, um, a 988 uh, call agent. I think that'd be kind of another way to think about diversifying that the workforce. And, and lastly, um, uh, funding wise. So I know there's lots of funding and let's talk, I mean, there's lots of funding and not enough funding. <laughs> so yeah, let's, let's, I don't want to give an impression that, oh, we're all taken care of. No. So um, yeah, can you talk we a wish. little bit? Yes, I know. Um, oh, wait, before I go there, whoa, 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 I do want to say one thing is that 988 happened really quickly. So again, yes. if people are like just hopping into the conversation that um, there was legislation and legislation happens outside of SAMHSA. So there was legislation, the legislation passed with a date of and you shall, HHS Correct. and SAMHSA, have this done by and launched by ABCD date. So um, sometimes it may appear that, well, wait, where's the stakeholders? 
um, we might not have even been involved in the development of the legislation, but things right. move so fast with 988. And so I do feel like a little bit, um, sometimes there's a little bit of catch up, but, but I think it's happened as I see particularly some listservs, stakeholders who are involved in these processes, putting information out in order to get feedback from the constituents that they could bring to their stakeholder groups. So I do see how, how that is working and that's really great. So let's talk about the funding now. Now we know where the legislation came from and there's some funding sometimes in that legislation. So let's talk about the funding. So when the legislation was passed, it, you know, the I think the one thing that most people talked about when 988 legislation went through was that it was an unfunded mandate. And so it was, you shall do it, Thank you. <laughs> but there was, and we will give you this amount of money to get it done or any of that. That was not that was not done at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline was already in place. It's been in place since 2005, but it was an operation that ran on I want to say around 5 million dollars as an with with an annual budget, much smaller footprint than what it is right now. There was an infusion of dollars and I would say like the final hour of like really trying to get this stood up. And so I will say that over the last probably 12 to 16 months, we've seen an uh, influx of dollars from about 24 million to about 400 million for the implementation of, of 988. And when you think about it, when you say it that way, it's, you went from 24 million to 400 million. It's like, wow, that's a lot of money. It's really not. Mm-hmm. Because you're actually thinking about there was no 988 office that existed within SAMHSA prior to January 2021. So there were there was no staff, there, there were that there was no one assigned and directly in charge of leading the implementation of this very large effort or initiative that is responding to legislation that's been passed. But you're also thinking about the amount of money that it takes to beef up your 988 call centers to get to the capacity of where they could handle the type of call volume that we were anticipating and expecting. Do you have to also think about that right now there are 56 states and territories that receive funding from SAMHSA to implement 988? And a lot of the money that has been assigned to to the 988 effort goes directly to the states to implement and enhance their call centers, their systems, their technology, their infrastructure, hiring, their workforce, training, like all of that is being directed to the states to enhance and implement this this initiative. And you're not thinking about the level of messaging that needs to take place, the funding that needs to be associated with that, the marketing communications that need to go out to the general public. Um, Because I I would think like if you were to think about, and I I think two examples uh, would be, um, you remember, I I think, and I'm not really sure when it came out or when it started, but this anti-smoking campaign, right? Remember when it was like, all you started seeing all over the place were these, posters and commercials about how it was not cool to smoke it's Mm -hmm. not don't smoke it's not cool like you think you know Mm -hmm. especially like the after school specials if you think about the funding that the federal government put behind 
that effort alone. It was about $400 million all those years ago. Mm -hmm. And we have none of that right now. We don't have any of that funding available for communications and marketing or a large campaign effort to really talk about 988. And also when you think about the the way that we talk about 911, I remember I learned about 911 when I was in kindergarten, that it was very impressed upon and you had the people from the fire stations would come and talk to you about 911 and well in the 80s they also came to talk to you about the poison control number but that you know Mm -hmm. you got the little sticker that had the little kitchen magnet that had all of the numbers on there but essentially if you call 911 they get you to everybody so just thinking about like we need to do a communication effort and campaign for 988 at that magnitude. And we're trying to do that right now with just the very limited resources mm-hmm. because we are putting the funding into the actual call center. And then again, a lot of that funding goes directly to Vibrant to actually manage the system right. itself and the call centers and the volunteers and the training again and all of the technology. So when you look at the amount of money that's being spent with Vibrant directly going towards the call centers that's providing the service. The other half of the funding is going to the states to implement the infrastructure to make sure that all of these things work well together. There's still a a much, much, much larger investment that needs to be made into Mm -hmm. this 988 initiative. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think we've done a lot with a little and we we have gone from a very I don't think there's probably any other program in maybe government history that went from, you know, such a small number of 24 to 400 and maybe in the course of a year. But still, it, it even though it sounds like and it seems like a lot of funding, when you think about the magnitude of this initiative and something that is affecting the entire country, it's still not a lot of dollars. Yeah. It really isn't. And when yeah. you start looking at the pie chart of how much money is going directly to the call centers to do what they have to do, the other half going to the states to make sure they have the infrastructure to, to, to see all of these things through, you realize that there is still a very large deficit that needs to be covered. Covered. And we are positive that we might will get there soon, but that's why we're also being very transparent with the data and the numbers so that we can be held accountable so that we can say with the money that you've been that we've been given, this is what we've been able to accomplish. Look how we take in chat from 3,400 in August of 2021 to 39,000 in August of 2022. And, and that was with a very, uh, you know, limited amount of uh, effusion of dollars. And so we're hoping that when we go back and make that next fiscal request and we show them the data of the numbers of, of people that are being impacted by having these services available, we can start to ask for those additional dollars to continue what we've done and then also to start with thinking about enhancements and improvements. Right, right. I think you talk a little bit about how HHS and SAMHSA is working also to build, um, we were talking about equity and disparities in 988. And there are, you know, some some funding mechanisms there through the bipartisan Safer Communities Act, et cetera. So I think those are other opportunities to think about the scale, really, of work that's a that's ahead. Just to get the implementation, I don't even want to talk about sustainability right now, but um, there, there are a couple of things there. Do you want to talk a little, touch on a few of those things um, before we start to wrap up? Because I don't want to yeah. miss out on those things happening. Yeah. I, you know, thinking about the broader 
uh, topic of, of behavioral health and substance use crisis care, SAMHSA, along with uh, the, the Department of Health and Human Services, is really thinking about how they infuse dollars around equity into the those services. And so, as you were mentioning, the there's 120 million that's going towards mental health awareness training grant programs that basically prepare not only community members, but also first responders on how to respond to individuals more appropriately that have uh, mental health uh, disorders. There's an additional 37 million going to um, Project Advancing Wellness and Resilience in Education, and that's developing um, services that promote a healthy social and and emotional development of of school-age youth and preventing youth violence. There are just a number of different efforts that are happening across the entire department around building more equity and in, in how we're, we're providing behavioral health services. So it's not just limited to 988 and emergency crisis services, but we're also thinking about the entire spectrum of continuum of, of care and providing more equity in how we're put, putting forward those services. And, and again, making sure that if you're using federal dollars for services that you're also thinking about those things and that you make that a part of your strategic planning process before you're you're awarded uh, federal funding. Wow. Wow. Well, this was a lot of information, <laughs> but in a good way. I think the more we can, I always say, dig a little bit under the iceberg because sometimes things are just apparent to us just on the face of the iceberg, but there's other stuff underneath that you know, unfortunately, in government um, can um, unpack complexities. Well, that's just human behavior. We're complex, right? Right. So um, (laughs) it's hard to see that at the the front because we're trying to get messages out and make it easy for people to quickly grasp because the complexities might turn people off. But I think it's important for us to have these conversations. And I'm so glad you were able to join me and I could just pounce on con with like lots of uh, deep and complex questions. And so I really appreciate it. But before we kind of wrap up, is there sort of one, I always call it wisdom dropping, um, one piece of wisdom that you would like to leave the listeners with around, you know, whether it be 988, crisis care, whatever, you know, is there one piece of wisdom that you would like to leave folks with? I think um, what I would like to to leave is, is my one piece of wisdom is that we are very focused on, you know, thinking about this health first approach to the way that we provide service. And in the way that we are thinking about that is is very similar to the way that most people think about receiving health care, right? So like when you're having a heart attack and you're calling 911, they don't send the police first. And the way that health insurance pays for, you know, different types of services that are related to what they call health services and not mental health services. That's very similar to the way that we are here at SAMHSA. We want to continue to bring down this stigma of behavioral health or mental health being very viewed in this very criminalized uh, frame of mind, I guess, is is the word that I'm looking for. And so we're always looking for efforts and and opportunities that allow us to kind of bring down that, that stigma and wanting to make sure that we are providing open health first access 
to individuals that are experiencing mental health substance use crisis. Um, and so that's always going to be the forefront of what the work that we're trying to do. And we're also, again, we, we're very focused on making sure that that access is open and diverse and, and available to everybody. And, and that's really how we're thinking about this in the next five years is, is how to make sure that that is true for everyone across the country. Great. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. That's a beautiful health first approach. So thank you so, so much for joining me today. It's been um, a wonderful, my mind is a little blown. I got to like <laughs> now take a nap. <laughs> it's a lot of information, but it's such important information. So thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. Happy to be here. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So for our listeners, um, you have heard everything there is to know about 988. Well, okay. You haven't heard everything, but certainly we have a lot to think about. Um, we're going to go ahead and post links. So you have access to some of the things that Tiffany was um, referring to. And all I ask, you guys know, I ask you to subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Okay. Don't subscribe. That's fine. But I do think the most important thing is to listen and to share. Um, this is such valuable information. And our guests come, I, um, they're not compensated. I don't compensate them. <laughs> I'm not compensated. Um, <laughs> because we want folks to have access to this um, super important information. So please do share. And with that, I'd like to thank everybody for joining um, Unapologetically Black Unicorns. And we will hear you, see you, talk to you next week.